Saturday. That's great. Yeah, there's how. Caption the magic express. Hey, what's up? Train. It's a prison version. Welcome to the Enigma Hour with Captain Tiki, Neolot Phillips, and Captain Dave, Dave Allen. He's, he's, he's back. Oh, hold on. I got to bring that mic up. Okay, go for it. Lower down the music. No, I don't want to lower down the music. Okay, is that, is that better? Reporting for duty. <laughs> Reporting for duty. Yeah, sorry about last week, but uh, I uh, programmed... Thursday morning, did my Thursday morning show, went up to uh, the site of the Bigfoot Festival and didn't return home till Sunday about 8 o'clock. It was, a, it was a great festival. We were out there with the UFO. That's right. We gave away a lot of tree cookies. And uh, science kits. Science kits. We had crystal kids, balls. Sending kids home with making their own time machines. And oh, yeah. And Ethereum devices. <laughs> Yes. Uh-huh. Disc throw, UFO throwers. Oh, yes, that's right. Flying saucer and, uh, throwers. That r- rocket launchers. Rocket launchers. Uh, yeah, we were quite popular with the kids. And tree cookies. Oh, and the little balloon animals. Did you? <laughs> yeah. Did you make balloon animals? Really? Yeah. Where's my balloon animal, Dave? Oh, where's my tree cookie? We gave them all away. I'll make you a tree cookie. Okay. Well, I'll make you a balloon animal. Okay, I want a Bigfoot. Uh-huh. Make it happen. Good to be back. Yes, good to have you back. You missed a great interview with with uh, Chris Chris Reeves, a fourteen adventurer. All right. Yeah, it was a good good one. You would have enjoyed it. I'm sure because I'm all into those adventurers. Yes, we we uh, I got him hooked up on the Randonautica. By the way, this is a K A D L P 
103.5 FM in Sonora. I forgot to do that, but and, the FCC will be out. And it's the Enigma Hour. It is the Enigma Hour. They're on KAAD. LB. We, where we learn about life's little mysteries. Just the little mysteries. But actually, ten, tonight, on my end anyway, it's not really a, much of a mystery. Really, you're breaking. You're breaking the. You're breaking the deal, man. Yeah, but we're, I'm going to talk about uh, American mythology. Okay, that works. <clears throat> yeah, and uh, I'm going to trace back the origins of the American superhero. Okay, and uh, my contention is is that uh, Batman, Superman, the Fantastic Four. Sure. Are our modern American myths? Yes, I, I would agree with that. They're yeah. they're almost godlike. Uh, I mean, just think of all the money that's spent on movies and costumes and comic cons. And uh, speaking of cons, I do have a couple of announcements before we get started. Okay. Oh yeah, it's announcement time. Yes, it's it's uh, we got a little news so to do. That's a teaser now. <laughs> So I was talking to my, my good bud, Walter Bosley, and uh, we are going to be doing NIMZACON, uh, talking about the Sonora Aero Club, and uh, we've decided to do it online to make it easier for everybody and super cheap, be like 15 bucks. So more details to follow, but it, it's uh, Walter is going to be speaking, Cheshire is going to be speaking about about uh, ley lines and... and uh, power corridors because there's there walter has a theory that the sonora aero club vehicles flew along these these ley lines uh i'll be speaking and uh joseph farrell will be speaking if you're familiar with joseph joseph farrell uh the giza power or the giza uh, power plant all that and then uh dr alan greenfield will be speaking as well so we're going to do it all online we're going to broadcast from right here in sonora out on my backyard facing the, the uh, Columbia Airport. And uh, if you're local and uh, you get a hold of us and buy a ticket, buy a ticket, uh, we might have a little tiki party afterwards. And Dave, uh, you'll be a guest of honor, of course. Well, uh, uh, you'll be speaking, but I, I'm sure, I'll be sure to be listening. I don't know. Maybe you need to speak too. Well, I'm... Uh, you're, you're quite the expert on, on the Sonora Aero Club as well, so... Well, I, because it's part of our local heritage and right. legacy. Yeah, that's why we want to do it. So it's NIMZICON, October 16th. More more details to follow. Uh, I finished the book that I've been working on for a year with Dr. Alan Greenfield. Uh, it's called the, the Secrets of the Real Black Lodge Revealed. So if you're familiar with what the Black Lodge is, uh, we wrote a 300-page book on it. All right. And we go some weird places. So if you're if you're into that stuff... Um, yeah, it's on Amazon now. It's on <clears throat> Amazon now, okay. And uh, I put up a book of uh, Del Shao's art. It's called Reflections of the Sky, The Art and Arrows of Charles Del Shao. All so right. that's on Amazon as well. If you want want a cheap way to get all of, all of uh, Del Shao's art, you don't want to spend 1500 bucks on a book, <laughs> it's up there too. Oh, so, well, I, uh, since we're uh, doing our messages. Yeah. Uh, uh, if you are here in Tuolumne County at all, <clears throat> the Tuolumne County Historical Society has asked me to speak. Can't and, wait. And I'll be uh, speaking at the main public library 
and uh, October the 11th. And uh, the title is uh, The Truth is Out There and in Your Own Backyard. And the reason why I'm kind of excited about it is it's <clears throat> really gone mainstream. I mean, the Historical Society is asking me to give a talk on uh, UAPs, or the history of it. And I'll be for sure covering the show. Well, you have to. Although I'm going to go in the order, not start from modern times, but I'm going to introduce, it's curious that the Cognizant Report came out. Right. And then right after that, Mary Victor found uh, the books of Deschau right. uh, at Fred Washington's um, out, uh, trading post and furniture repair shop. <laughs> you can't make this stuff up. Yeah. <laughs> you really can't make this stuff up. And um, everybody knows that this is the uh, a pl- place of origin for the uh, Phantom Airship mystery. Yes, in the in in the uh, mysterious airships of 1895. And uh, so, well, actually, uh, it's it's 96 and 97. In uh, in 96. Uh, they came out a little bit just at, at winter, uh, like little test flights or something, and they were seen over this area. They hit Sacramento, and then they uh, uh, there's big dunes in San Francisco, and uh, uh, then um, and it made all the papers. And then pretty soon it made so many papers that the Calaveras paper just says. They've been seen here, too, because everybody knew what they were talking about. And then crossed 18 states. Right. And landed. Uh, Interacted with the farmers. Yeah. And everybody, well, most everybody, because there was all kind of stories about little green man, purple man. Oh, all Uh, kinds. uh, But most everyone um, thought it it was probably what I think it was. It's just uh, scientists, uh, inventors. Because it was big, you know, President Grant, uh, they offered a big, uh, uh, some big bucks to uh, come up with. Uh, it was already in the air, so to speak. <clears throat> um, people were already experimenting with all that stuff by then. I also, before we get started on, on the, the mythology stuff, I also wanted to tell you a story. Because you're doing the truth is up there, right? At out the, there. Out there. And in your own backyard. And in your own backyard. So I have a story for you about UFOs. And and uh, I thought you'd get a kick out of it because right. of what we were talking about before the show. Okay. So when I was when I was a little UFO researcher, when I was in college, I had a web page. It was called the S4 Database. And so he's been at this a long time. Oh, yeah. And so... One, so I had an unlisted telephone number back when that was a thing. Because, you know, I was paranoid, right? So I, <clears throat> I have this, this phone number. I'm living in Davis. I went to UC Davis. And one morning at exactly 7 a.m., this guy calls me up. And, you know, we didn't have caller ID or anything back then. But he calls me up. I'm fast asleep. I wake up. I answer the phone. He says, are you Olaf Phillips? I said, well, yeah, I'm Olaf Phillips. I'm, you know, very groggy and whatever. And he says, I got a story for you. I'm like, okay. And he says, I know for a fact that they're, they're flying 
you know, like auroras and, and UFOs out of Beale, Beale Air Force Base, which is typically a reconnaissance base, the U- U-2s, SR-71s, whatever. So he says, I know that they're flying UFOs out of Beale, and I have the schedule. I know when they're, when they're going to fly. I said, okay. He says, I'll take you out there, and you can see it. I know a good spot, and we'll go watch it, and you can see what I'm talking about. I'm like, great. You know, I'm half asleep. I'm all great. Sounds fantastic. Give me a call back and we'll figure it out. And I'll go go out to Marysville and go to Beale and we'll see some UFOs. He's like, okay, I'll talk to you soon. And he hangs up. I never knew his name, anything, right? He was on the phone for exactly like 58 seconds, just under one minute. He never called me back. So I... I go back to sleep. My girlfriend at the time, uh, she she's like, well, who was that? And I said, well, is this some guy? He says they're flying UFOs out of Beale. He wants to go look at UFOs. And she says, she gets real awake real fast. And she says, how did he get our number? I'm like, I don't know. She's like, don't we have an unlisted phone number? And there, there are some expletives that I'm removing for FCC compliance. And she's like, how did he get our number? I'm like, I don't know. She's like, did you post it on the internet? I'm like, of course not. I went to the trouble to have an unlisted number. Why would I give it to some, some guy? Right. And she, and she's like, I don't know. I don't know. How did he get the number? And we kept going around and we could never figure it out. And he never called back. You never met him. Never met him. But after that, I would hear strange echoes on my phone and clicking. Yeah, I, we were talking about that earlier. My connection with the Moorish Science Temple of America and Al Lewis, Grandpa Munster, um, got me into trouble and they started tracing. Oh, and then also uh, my better half families all from the Middle East. But wow. Yeah. That's a, so I just, I wanted, I promised to tell you that story. I thought it. You know, you're doing a thing about UAPs. Mm-hmm. There's, there's, it, back then it was a funny thing. If you, if you went in certain circles, you know, it, it was inevitable that, that things like this would happen. But there's also quite a body count that actually comes from, there was a guy uh, named Jim Keith and he went to Burning Man and he fell off the, he was very famous and he fell off the stage and broke his knee. And so he was living in Klamath Falls at the time, I think. And he he goes to the hospital because they're going to do orthoscopic surgery, right? And he tells everybody who will listen, I'm not coming back. And they're like, dude, it's just orthoscopic surgery. They're just repairing the cartilage in your knee. Nope, they're going to kill me. Guess what? He died on the table. Then his publisher, Ron Bonds, who published an operation called Illuminate Press, right? He goes out to dinner with his wife, who's a nurse, his wife and a couple of friends. They go to this Mexican restaurant in in Atlanta, Georgia, right? And he contracts some sort of fast-acting bacteria, and he dies. And so officially they said that he contracted E. coli and it killed him. But none of the other three who all ate the same salad, nobody else got sick. Mm. Yeah. 
So anyway, that's that's some food for thought for your UAP I, lecture. Well, I hope it doesn't have E. coli. <laughs> I hope your lecture doesn't have E. coli either. <laughs> uh, just uh, in my case, on my end, it's uh, this cabal of old vaudeville performers. Okay. Al Lewis, Carl Ballantyne, Professor Erwin Corey. Right. And did you know when Al Lewis had a radio show, he almost got elected... Uh, uh, you know, he played Car 54, where are you? Yeah, I remember. Okay. With Fred Gwynn. <laughs> yeah. Sure. And uh, they, they loved him in New York. But he was the uh, public, uh, the Pacifica station in New York. Oh, okay. And I had an association with him. And uh, The people you knew. Uh, but when he died, Bush came in and confiscated all his radio shows, wouldn't have him aired again. That's crazy. Yeah, I'm telling you, it's uh, maybe not quite as weird as because I think Al Lewis died of natural causes. Yeah, but he was very uh, influential political. Well, there there was there. a lady who I think it was on the one of the Pacifica stations out of Santa Cruz, named Mae Brussel. She used to do all this, you know, JFK stuff and I mean, like really intense conspiracy stuff. <clears throat> and you know, her all her stuff vanished. Yeah, well, and Al Al Lewis was fighting against the uh, cover-ups and conspiracies. Sure. All right. So, so you brought in a box, a massive box filled with books, yeah, and I could, magazines. Yeah. I, uh, so uh, I dug these out of my basement, and they ha- I haven't they haven't seen the light of day in years. Well, they're in great condition. Uh, well, um, uh, Bantam reprinted all these books, and uh, they started reprinting them, I think, in 64, and then still in the 1990s sometimes, the early 1990s, they were still reprinting them. Uh, and that is part, that, that is an important part of what I uh, wanted to talk about. And, uh, but I want to make sure that, like, it's the truly American experience, the never-ending battle for truth, justice, and the American way. Up, up, and away. Up, up, and away. Yeah. Um, so I know I'm going to trace this back pretty far back, and uh, we're not going to consider, like, H. Ryder Haggard um, or Jules Verne or H.G. Uh, Wells are uh, any this going to be all american uh thing this is because it, the superhero is really an american thing it is uh, in super, a lot of ways yeah and they, yeah. yeah it's red white and blue as you can get okay so we're going to trace it all the way back um our i guess it's better to, we're going to discuss the evolution and how it reflects the culture that we live in and how it is truly uniquely an American experience. Okay, well, lay it on me, man. <clears throat> okay, this goes Take back. me back. All right, so when I'm not going to do no Joseph Campbell <laughs> This stuff. is my going backwards music. Right. <laughs> I, like, I like that sound of the harp, actually. The, the memory harp. harp, you know. Like, uh, <laughs> do you want me to find a harp song? <laughs> No, I have a memory harp in my... Uh, <laughs> Do you want me to pull my, it up? No, no, no. That's, 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 that's <laughs> you know I will. Yeah, this is a little nostalgia for the old folks. No, this goes back way far. Okay. Probably, probably it would start out in, in the dime novels. 
But you know, the dime novels, 1860 to about 1915, something oh, like right. that. Um, and when they first came out, it was cowboys and Indians. Right. That's all it was. You know, I was kidnapped by the Indians, fell in love with the Indian princess, and uh, stuff like that. Or the sharpshooter guys, you know. And then um, uh, Jesse J the out uh, Jesse James, the exploits of uh, oh, sure. Joaquin Murrieta. Um, yeah, the, the lost treasure of Jesse James. Um, the um, and then the Pinkertons. Oh yeah, the Pinkertons. Uh, would be yeah. after, so I'd be kind of a detective, kind of a little bit there, you know. Yeah, private private mercenary uh, army. The stories of Buffalo Bill. Sure. And uh, stuff like that, right? Okay. I now got in you. England, it was petty, uh, penny dreadfuls. That right. was a whole different thing. Although I will tell you, in the dime novels, I found a cool one about a steam man, like a locomotive man. Okay. And ran by steam. It was pretty cool. It was a dime novel. But um, at the end of the dime novel era became the pulp. Oh, sure. The pulp era. And eventually that became, uh, I mean, the bread and butter of everyone. The... Uh, Weird tales and yeah, amazing and stories. Amazing stories. That's actually a lot of. Was it? It's not Gray Barker who is who ran Saucerian, who did a lot of you know UFO stuff back in the fifties and the sixties. He got his start, I think, in the in publishing pulp stuff. And John Keel, uh, he wrote he wrote stories, and like Schaefer was an amazing story. What, yeah. what a lot of these authors found out is if they wanted a quick buck, right. they kicked out a pulp, and there's a lot of famous writers, yeah. actually. Otto and then, Bender was. And yeah. then uh, all a lot of classics, American classics, Ed Rice Burroughs, sure. that was pulp fiction. Yeah. Um, Azorro was okay. pulp. And you can draw some kind of line between... The mask and the tape, uh, cape and the uh, hidden um, uh, bat cave or whatever you want to call it, Don Diego. Oh, okay. You know, with Zorro. Mm -hmm. I mean, he had a mask and a cape, right? Right. And he was a trained swordsman. Yes. And uh, I used to watch it. What TV was the name show. of it? Yeah, with uh, yeah, it was like that Disney Guy Williams. Guy Williams, right? Yeah. No, yeah. I watched that too. Yeah, he'd 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 cut a Z in your chest and then cut your suspenders and your right. pants will fold. And you know what's uh, amazing about that? That was actually based on Stanislaus, Stanislaw, the Indian renegade from Mission San Jose, and they finally got him down there by Knight's Ferry. Really? Um, but he used to carve an S. He was an expert swordsman, and he used to carve an. S. He was an indigenous guy. And uh, and did the same thing. He killed no one. Well, uh, sorta. Yeah, I mean that was his code. Right. Um, and it did. It ended up translating into the pulps. Uh, but that was actually based on a real person. I had no idea. Um, and he used to cut an S, but an S is just a backward Z. True. <laughs> I didn't. I never thought of that. But yeah, I guess it is. <laughs> So, yeah, and what was the name of his horse? He had a super wonder horse. Oh, gosh, I don't remember. And uh, so, I mean, you can say that might be a per precursor to the superhero. It was like everyone built on top of one well, it's, another. Well, it's the hero. The hero. You, you know, Joseph Campbell. I know, I didn't he, want to get into that. I know, but he, he talks about the hero's journey. Yeah. yeah, the hero's journey. Yeah. 
because um, that maybe we'll save that for another episode. Well, you're there, totally right about there's that. there's a guy that I want to get on named Hercules, and he has a whole thing about the Golden Fleece and the hero's journey. Um, I have, but that has nothing to do with this. <laughs> first editions uh, at the Earth Core by Edgar Rice Burroughs. That's crazy. And uh, well, this was published first in a pulp. Okay. And uh, in 1913, so that was right when things were transitioning. Well, well, there was this guy that was a real important transition guy that nobody really ever heard about. Okay. Uh, well, you uh, and I'll tell you why he's important. He became like the uh, prototype, sort of, of the superhero, but he was an actual person. Okay. And he was here in California, and spent time in the gold regions. Uh, although he went to school and stuff in San Francisco. And his name was uh, Richard Henry Savage Jr. And he was born in the 1840s. And his dad was a lawyer and a um, uh, manufacturer, a uh, titan of commerce, I guess. Titan for, of industry. Yeah, titan of industry, that's right. And, uh, uh, but the gold rush happened. And his dad just packed his things and split. Oh, wow. Well, no, not bad news. He established himself here in California, then sent for his wife and kids. Well, that's good. And, uh, but uh, little Richie um, was, well, like five years old, and he came to uh, California. Okay. And he went to school in, it was the very first public school systems. What is that, uh, John, John Sweet? Started the public instruction in John California. Yeah, so yeah, that guy. And uh, uh, Savage was uh, the first. He went to school with the, the Youngs. Oh, wow. Uh, and he was uh, the first class to graduate from the public schools in California. In San Francisco? In San Francisco, yeah. And then um, he got a job as a lawyer or a lawyer's assistant for... He was starting to work, learn law, and he was working for like the, I would call it the guy that works for the like the senator, okay, uh, one of his staffer people and stuff yeah. like that. And then he got uh, he got a um, admission to West Point, and wow. so he uh, went to West Point, but he studied engineering and law. That's a so, weird combination back then. Um, well, that's kind of his dad. Oh, you know what his dad was famous for? And his name was Richard uh, Savage, too. Okay. Um, he was the discoverer of the Comstock load. Wow. Yeah, that's kind of a big deal, huh? That's a huge deal. Uh, and, that's uh, like mind-numbingly huge. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, that was his claim to fame. Uh, this guy, the other guy, his son's... Uh, um, it's a great story. So he gets out of West Point, and um, he comes to California. He's the Army Corps of Engineers. But he's really known as like a diplomat. Like he's like, everybody likes his speeches, right? Okay. He stands up for <clears throat> truth, justice, and the American way. And, Qu quite the order. Yes. And uh, so when there was disputes on the Mexican border... They'd send him. They'd send and him. they didn't send him to build the wall. I mean, he was an engineer after all. 
He went and to settle border disputes. And he always found fairly, uh, you know, it wasn't uh, if it, uh, he would find favor with Mexico if, if that's what he found, okay? So then there were starting to be like these border disputes. And he actually went out and surveyed at the um, uh, Indian lands, the Roundhouse Indian lands up there in Northern California. Okay. And there was disputes over uh, land rights. And he went up there and surveyed it and found in the Indians' so, favor. So he, he was a man about town, like he was everywhere. Uh, yeah, and, and another important thing, what, uh, one of his claims to fame was that um, during the um, anti-Chinese riots, Dennis Kearney and all, all them guys, uh, right. um, he um, was in the, uh, I think it was called the safety committee or something, but he- <laughs> safety he, committee? Yeah, he saved the Chinese from all getting lynched. It's essentially what uh, he did. So I'm painting this picture already of this guy that deals fairly with all people. Right. Okay. And he's a great order. Right. And he's, he's trained rah, rah, as a rah, lawyer. Rah, yeah. An engineer. engineer. Okay. He's rah, rah, America, truth, justice, and liberty all the way. Right. Right. So then um, he gets tired of being on the Army Corps engineer, so he applies. He's, he's like a first lieutenant. You know? So he uh, applies to be a diplomat or a, an attache uh, yeah. uh, of, of uh, an ambassador. And, he okay. went, and then he went over to Egypt. All right. And he actually served in the Egyptian army. And then, um, I don't know how that happened, but then when he decommissioned out of there, came back, um, uh, he started being going all over the world. Uh, he became an adventurer. Because uh, he, uh, he visited all these different countries. Uh, and not necessarily uh, because he was uh, hung out with all, he was like a diplomat, right. an ambassador kind of dude. Doing treaties. And, and, right. And then, uh, but he was in Honduras and he got the jungle fever. So he came back um, to San Francisco and while he was convalescing, he wrote a book. And uh, the book... Um, was called My Official Wife. And what the book, well, I know it, it, it sounds kind of corny old fashioned, but it was the classic Alfred Hitchcock story. Okay. Where this guy's like an ambassador, a diplomat, and he gets kind of duped or falls into the middle of this international intrigue where they got this sexy girl going to assassinate the sounds star. Like, sounds like North by Northwest. Yeah, that's exactly okay. right. Okay. And uh, boy, uh, boy, and that—that's exactly the plot of it. Okay. Uh, uh, kind of bumbles into it accidentally, right? And then has to find his way out and right. rescue the situation. There's an assassination going to happen. What? What's he going to do? Right. Right. He's drawn into this, and so New York Times at the time just thought, "Hey, this is some good stuff." You right. Know? All right. Then things changed. He started writing uh, more and more novels. He could kick out three or four a year. That's a lot. Yeah, uh, he'd just sit there and write. It took me. It took me a year to write three hundred pages. If he's popping out three hey, a month in the pulp days, they had to write a novel a month. And That's I'll get crazy. To that. 
Although I do, I do know a guy who can do that. But I know one guy. Stephen who, King, Philip Dick. <laughs> well, <laughs> no, but he he writes books about UFOs and stuff. Okay. So, uh, oh, and, and then he he married a noblewoman from Germany, and then uh, they uh, had a kid, okay. and, uh, uh, a daughter, and the daughter married a Russian um, officer of some sort. Okay. And uh, so there's a lot of Russian connections there anyway. All right. So, uh, and then after that, I got the review of, of what happened uh, to his writing. So uh, when a second book came out, third one says, it's marred by blood and thunderism. <laughs> the plot impossible. It keeps the excitement up to the climax pitch through nearly its whole length. And so they're saying that there, uh, there is no climax because the climax keeps happening on every page. That's crazy. Uh, and there is a, th- uh, throughout a lack of moderation, of repose, of proportion, it's not literature. <laughs> and it says... Uh, it is definitely not literature. It huh? says uh, the character is unrealistic. No one can be exposed to mortal danger almost daily like that just escaping dagger thrusts and pistol shots uh, with results more favorable to the theatrical progress of the story than to common sense. And, <laughs> and listen okay. to the uh, titles of The Midnight Passenger, In the Shadow of the Pyramids, A Daughter of Judas. He put out this one called The Flying Halicon, A Mystery of the Pacific Ocean, 1894. This is when he's writing and this is right during the transition. So hold on, the the flying helicon. Yeah. What is it? Well, it's a it. Well, the story is about a lost race of people of uh, an indigenous Lemurians? tribe set in the Pacific, where a horde of Aztec treasure is guarded by these Indians. And then there's another one that it was. Uh, political intrigue and violent, violence in a, a future America. Okay. And it's all under control of a Professor Carl Stein. Uh, the evil, he introduces the, the, the mad scientist that's going to take over the world, right? Yeah, the, the, the archetypal Bond villain. And um, he, he invented the Bond villain. Uh, the two, uh, I'm going to... Um, Oh, am, am I shortcutting this? No, yeah, sort of okay. in a way, but you're exactly right. It's it's like a James Bond uh, kind of thing because it's filled with the intrigue. But what he does, what the critics don't like, what the public loved, is it's episodic. Each right. chapter, it leaves you hanging. Hanging, so you got to turn the next page uh, and get. And that was the beginning of the pulps. Okay. Okay, he was the first pulpster. He kind of set the style uh, for the pulps. Uh, then uh, we come to uh, his namesake. And this is uh, Doc. <laughs> I know oh, where this wanna, is going. Oh, do you want to know how this guy died? Yeah, so, I, actually, okay, I'm so, curious. All right, so he travels the world. Oh, he was in the first National Guard. He organized. That's when he became a colonel. And he went by Colonel 
Um, so where did Doc come from? He just okay. Well, I'm going to okay. tell you in a minute. I just want to curious if you want to know where uh, Colonel uh, Richard Henry Savage, how he died. Junior, yeah, I, he died. I would like to know. Well, uh, out of all these adventures uh, that he traveled the world, world traveler, okay, great, known as a world traveler, adventurer, and stuff. He's over in New York. Um, all upset because he wasn't good at his royalties from his publisher. Okay. And stormed out of the office and got run over by a wagon. <laughs> you know, I was sure when you started down that path, I was sure that it was going to end in a duel. Oh. Some kind of firefight. No. <laughs> no. No, he was known for his fairness. And even though he was a soldier, he was the diplomat. And, yeah, uh, but he was also getting getting cheated on his royalties. Oh yeah, no, he I, he stormed out of there mad and got hit he uh, hit by a horse. Hit and by wagon, a horse, a wagon ran wow. right over him. That's sad. <laughs> you live that whole life and you get hit by a wagon. Right. So uh, there was this publishing company that wanted to get in on the pulp action, Street and Smith, okay. and they came out with this character, uh, the Shadow. Right. And that was like the first pulp. But he had like uh, the power to cloud men's minds. Yeah, he was, of, yeah he, he, was, he was a mesmer. Right, and um, he kept his identity secret. That's why, you know, they say that, that it's mesmerizing. Because back in the old days, they had people who were considered to be mesmers. And they could like cloud your vision and erase your memory. Right. So, uh so they were real successful at that. So they said, okay, we're going to, uh, we got to come up with the ultimate one. You know, it's like they're going to try it again with a new character. Okay. So they all get together and uh, they start thinking about um, Street and Smith people were uh, wanting to say, we're going to make this character right. that is the strongest, bravest. Um, uh, knows at a superlative in body and mind. Right. You know? Super fair. Right. Yeah. So, um, okay, for people that don't know, Doc Savage, uh, Clark Savage Jr. Okay. Uh, was the, probably the greatest Pulp Fiction hero of the 30s. Well, you, just just to, to get a mental picture, you've got a fairly large box that I believe is filled with Doc Savage stuff. Yeah, I don't have a complete set, but nearly so. They're the Bantam reprints. And then I have other memorabilia, like some of the comic books and um, a yearbook. I mean, that's that's pretty legendary to have that many books. You know, they have Savage Cons. I did not know that. Doc Cons or whatever they I knew about them. Wasteland, where you can go down and be at Mad Max, but I didn't um, know that Doc Savage had a convention. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, you know, pulp collectors. Sure. And uh, although the initial run of these things, uh, uh, one man wrote 161 of them. It's under the house name of uh, Kenneth Roberson. And um, that's because they, Street and Smith, owned the rights. And, and, uh, but Lester Dent was the staff writer that wrote 161 of them. And then the uh, rest of, uh, in the original series, there was 181. 
and he hired ghost writers to write some of them. One of the ghost writers was Ian Fleming. He was uh, a ghost Ian writer Fleming, for it. Yeah. Wow. And um, and then later on, there is now 213 um, Yeah, because they're, they're probably still making them. Well, um, uh, Jose Philip Farmer um, did... Uh, uh, Doc Savage's biography, like thinking he was a real person and tracing sure. back his history. He's some kind of cousin to Tarzan, you know, or something like well, that. Well, I mean, listen to this. The man of bronze, high above the skyscrapers of New York, Doc Savage engages in deadly combat with the red-fingered survivors of an ancient lost civilization. Then, with his amazing crew, he journeys to the mysterious Lost Valley in search of a fabulous treasure and to destroy the mysterious Red Death. I yeah. mean, if that's not a book you want to read. And uh, yeah, it's a science hero battling gangsters, mad scientists, and foreign powers. Um, he's uh, thinned out weir- uh, weirwoods in Northern California, established <laughs> Brontosaurus Preserve at the center of the earth, and prevented an evil Maharaja hypnotizing the entire world. Um, he could dodge a bullet, crawl up the wall like a human fly, hold his breath like for longer than a pearl diver, smash through a door with one punch. Although, uh, he's also the greatest surgeon, uh, the greatest chemist, the greatest inventor. Okay, so <clears throat> a while back, they made a movie called Buckaroo Banzai. And that's him. And that that's is him. Doc Savage. Yeah, Buckaroo Banzai is literally... Doc, Doc Savage. That's exactly it. You wouldn't believe the influence this guy had, and, and we'll get into a little bit. Just not Superman, Batman. Ian Fleming totally ripped off uh, Fantastic Island um, in Dr. No. Dr. No okay. is, is actually Fantastic Island. Uh, really? Revamped. Um, yeah, because like I said, you know, you were describing, it's like he, he created the Bond villain. Uh, he did. Yeah. Yeah, the mad scientist. And, mm-hmm. and this is this is years before Superman. Out on an island, and he's, oh, yeah. yeah, the whole no, thing. With the underground facility. Yeah, the underground facility is a big missile. With, uh, well, no, it didn't. Oh, yeah, that's right. It's before missiles. the missiles. Although I will tell you, Doc Savage was the guy with the gadgets. He had more gadgets than Batman which is, and which James is, Bond combined. Which is like Bat- Batman and James Bond. Well, that's where it all it came, all came from. from. So anyway, might as well just say all this. Doc Savage lived on the 86th floor in the tallest building in New York. So it's the Empire State Building, although they never say. Okay, and he has his office. And in his office, what does he have? This is 1933. Okay. So he's got like a penthouse up there, you know. It's bulletproof glass. <laughs> he has an answering machine. He has closed circuit television. Wow. Okay. In the, the 30s. Yeah, this is in the 30s. Oh, uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And you know the Mr. Spock yeah, nerve the, pinch? Yeah, nerve pinch, right. Uh, Vulcan was, death, death grip. Right. Uh, Doc Savage had that in the 30s. You know, you know what this kind of reminds me of? Have you ever, you ever heard of a guy named Jodorowsky? No, I have Alejandro Jodorowsky. He makes these oh. really bizarre... Um, art films like the Holy Mountain. Don't watch it unless you like art films. I watched it in in film class. But he he originally got the rights to Dune, 
And Jodorowsky was going to do this like monumental epic, right? I mean, he had like Mick Jagger. He had like Orson Welles, who was going to be Harkonnen. He had uh, Salvador Dali was was going to be the Emperor the of Mankind. Art director. <laughs> the, well, no, no. But he, no, his art director was actually Geiger. H.R. Uh. Geiger. But when you, when you look at what Jodorowsky did on Dune, right? It shows up everywhere. All the science fiction films of the, the mid to late 70s all the way into the 90s. All the people who were art directors and props guys and writers, they all came originally from this Jodorowsky project to make Dune. That is that is Doc Savage. Well, kind of like, yeah. To, uh, to adventure, to an adventure story, that is Doc Savage. So he had this thing in his uh, uh, penthouse, and it was called the Flea Run. The Flea Run. Yeah, and it was like a pneumatic tube that you got into. Well, Batman had that. And uh, you slid. Oh, you wouldn't believe how Batman, our Batman and Superman ripped off Doc Savage. Uh, so he'd go down his flea run, and then all of a sudden, he's in this warehouse down by the wharf, and it's called the Hidalgo Trading Company. And inside is every gadget. Uh, he had dirigibles. He had um, auto gyros. Oh, uh, He had the Batwing. A stealth airplane that was shaped like a triangle. He had submersibles. He had a little submarine. He had dirigibles. Um, uh, he wow. Had, and the cars had all the little Bond gadgets on it, you know. The like oil slick. The and oil the, slick and all that. The machine guns. Yeah, but he would use, Doc Savage would use mercy bullets. <laughs> yeah, so it just knocks you out. It doesn't. Oh, right. Non he had a code. Non-lethal to harm no man, but he went around righting wrongs and. But uh, you know, you know that's that's a la Superman and Batman. I mean, Superman and Batman until later, you know, they didn't kill anybody. Did, things did get dark recently, haven't they? Yeah, and that probably reflects the culture because that's yes. kind of the point I'm trying to make. Because yeah. they went from uh, Jesse James, the bandit hero, right, and now we're into Doc Savage, the well, uh, in a, you know, in the West. Right in in Europe, mostly in America, we have this notion of the anti-hero. You know, you've got you've got Han Solo. Han Solo, he's a thief, he's a smuggler, right? But he's the hero. You know, Jesse James is a thief and a murderer, but he's a hero. So I get it. Yeah, that's kind of the anti-hero. Right. Yeah, and uh, the character James Bond himself is like. Not what Doc Savage uh, was. No. So they go on these adventures, and he had the first adventure team. So think Fantastic Four. Sure. Okay. As a matter of fact, two of the uh, so Ben Grimm and Johnny Storm they'd always be fi fighting with one another in the Fantastic Four, pulling pranks and stuff. Right. That was directly lifted from Ham and Monk. Uh, two of Doc Savage's associates. Yeah, and he takes that dirigible all over the place. Uh, yeah, well, it depends yeah. on the mission. Right. Uh, what he would uh, take. Yeah, things like... Uh, yeah, this is 1933. Height right. of the Depression. Right. And uh, But he seems that he's the science detective hero guy. Oh, Batman has... Okay, 
Just let, let's compare. The first one we have to compare is probably Superman. Okay. Okay. So Doc has a secret retreat up in the Arctic. The Fortress of Solitude. And, he, and it is. The yeah, no, I saw, I saw that. The Fortress of 1933. Solitude. 1933. Okay. Well, this one might have been 19. And, and this was, yeah, he would foil whoever it was. And a lot of times it was gangsters right. faking science fiction stuff. To hide their crimes, you know? Right. And that's Scooby-Doo. <laughs> no, Scooby-Doo is a direct descendant of uh, Doc Savage. But he had his adventure team. It was his first adventure team. And uh, here's, here's his amazing crew, okay? Okay, lay it on me. All right, William Harper Little John. So he's known as Johnny, the bespeckled scientist who was the world's greatest living expert on geology and archaeology okay and he would never uh say a small word when a big one could do just as well, well. that's important when you're an international science right. so uh, science detective his quote is i'll be super amalgamated <laughs> uh, okay what is what is this henry ford <laughs> uh here's colonel john renwick rennie is his nickname uh his favorite sport was pounding his massive through heavy paneled doors. That's quite a hobby. Yes, that's right. Lieutenant Colonel Andrew Blodgett Mayfair, and he's known as Monk. Only a few inches over five feet tall and yet over 260 pounds, he looked like a, a he call him Monk because he looked like a monkey. He was like the thing. Right. And, um, but he was a brilliant chemist. Uh, and then Major Thomas... Uh, Jay Roberts, that's Long Tom, was a uh, uh, genius in electricity. Brigadier General Theodore Marley Brooks was a, a lawyer and probably the best dressed man in New York. And <laughs> I uh, like how it's he's he's part of the international adventure team, but he's also the best dressed man in New York. That's right, and he always had his black sword cane. Of course. With their leader, they would go anywhere, fight anyone, dare everything, seeking excitement dare and perilous everything. adventure. Okay? So he not only... So check this story out, and who do you think this character is? Okay. So his uh, parents die, and he inherits a fortune. Do they die mysteriously? Yes. Okay. As a matter of fact, uh, they die mysteriously. Our, our tragic, 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 yeah. some kind of ominous stuff in the background. Okay. Right. Gives him somebody to hunt. So he, uh, he, they inherit this immense wealth. Right. And they're tutored as from infants almost, uh, like in martial arts, chemistry, science. Um, Civics. You know, uh, yeah. All, you know, the best education, but it right. always leans towards... I th well, I almost think Alan Quartermain, you know, the guy that... that we're well, I was going to ask you about Alan Quartermain, but we can get to yeah, that. No, because that's that's on the other side Yeah, of no, the that's pond. English, right. It's right. Alan Quartermain's like a ripoff of Doc Savage. Well, actually, they uh, Alan Quartermain came first. That was the really? 1890s. Because I used to watch the Alan Quartermain experiment TV show in the movies. Um, no, the uh, character... 
H. Ryder Haggard wrote She, which is like a classic in paranormal. Right. And he invented the King Solomon's Mimes. He invented the Lost World. Yeah, the concept. Lost World genre. Yeah. Uh, but I'm trying to paint this like American. Oh, no, no, no. Alan Quartermain is but very I'm different. I brought the name up. No, but Alan Quartermain is different. I mean, it's, it's more, it's Doc Savage. Just looking at the covers of these books, I mean, Doc Savage is this good-looking guy. He's ripped. You know, he's wearing a ripped shirt all the time. That isn't what he looked like in the uh, 1933. Uh, I have well, they had. Well, they they also had the comic code. Uh, these then. these are by James Bama, and yeah, uh, he tried to get more back into the original description of what um, Lester Dent, the author of most of these books, um, developed. You know, Stan Lee uh, says that Doc Savage was the prototype of all superheroes. I think that's probably and, true. Um, and then you figure uh, the namesake Richard Henry Savage was probably reading the dime novels when he was a kid. Right. And then the people, Lester, Dan, and this other guy that actually um, ended up publishing some of Richard Henry uh, Savage's uh, short stories, um, Street and Smith, that's what they read. Right. And then um, uh, guess who the people that invented Superman, Batman, what they read was the Doc, Doc Savage. Savages. So, okay, so first, uh, so I'm trying to paint this picture. So then he has this education in technology. Right. Yeah, we're, we're trying to pick like a that. character. Right. right. And then uh, he has his secret lair right. where he develops all this technology and gadgets. and gadgets and stuff like that. And then he goes out. So he's human. Right. Um, he's not, has superpowers, but he kind of does because from infancy he's been trained. To, well, yeah, it's, it's a mental thing, not a supernatural uh, and then he's aided with his gadgets and you can harken back to zorro with the sure. uh, uh expert swordsman right that's you know um uh and he goes out uh fighting the evil doers for right and justice now who could no, that no be? i mean it's batman it I mean, is Batman. we all oh, figured it out oh and check it out the um doc savage had his utility vest instead of a utility belt yeah and it, uh, pull out kind of things. Oh, and then one time they were locked up and he actually took his shoelaces and wrapped them around the bars and it was really some kind of thermite that uh, <laughs> burned through the uh 1930s the thermite. <laughs> All right, well, we've hit the halfway point, believe it okay. or not. So you're listening to the Enigma Hour with Captain Tiki and Captain Dave on KAADLP 103.5. FM, yeah. Sonora, California. All right, we're going to take a little break, and then we'll come back for more. And, yeah, we'll do the Doc Savage Code. Together. Yeah, we'll do the Doc Savage Code and more discussion about how this has affected all superheroes from this point on. Because right. superheroes really are an American thing. But, you know, unique American. It's a unique it's American mythology. Thing. It's like the banjo. The, and the evolution of the superhero reflects our culture, where we've been, and where we're yeah. headed. Absolutely. All right. So here's here's a Frank Comstock from Synchronicity, the Comstock load, uh, doing some space music.
All right. <clears throat> Welcome back to the Enigma Hour with Captain Tiki and Captain Dave. I'm Olaf Phillips. That's Dave over there. Oh, hang on a minute. There you go, Dave. Now we can hear you talk. Yeah, during the break, we were talking about uh, cinema. We're going to have to do an episode on, uh, on uh, cinema. He showed me Mr. Lobo, a horror film host. Yeah, Mr. Lobo, Cinema Insomnia. Yeah. They're not bad movies. They're just under, misunderstood. And it reminded me, there's a, I, I listened to Bob Wilkins when I was a kid. And Bob Wilkins was actually helped Mr. Lobo get a start. So Mr. Lobo originally uh, worked at one of, the, one of the stations out in Sacramento. He was like a producer, right? And they had a slot <clears throat> in the middle of the night, which you'd imagine is a great time for a horror host. And he said, hey, I want to have a show. And they're like, whatever. We're not broadcasting anything. They just show lousy movies. So he's like, well, I want to host the lousy movies. So he got his start, I think, on Channel 13, KOBR. Yeah, I really cut my teeth on all that stuff because uh, when I was a little kid, I uh, subscribed to Famous Monsters of Filmland magazine. Yeah, you, you were showing me that earlier. Uh, yeah, I had one of those little T-shirts. I was a master monster maker, third place. Wow. Uh, but I didn't win the uh, trip through Force J. Ackerman's castle. That would have been uh, a sight to see. Yeah, so you, you had to make these dioramas out right. of those Aurora yeah. monster. Yeah, with like, like Dracula or right. Frankenstein. or Right. I had to, and they have accessory kits, and uh, so I had exposed graves with. <laughs> You're probably a lot of fun in Halloween, huh? No, I, well, you know that's uh, the second um, American holiday mo most celebrated. You know, I'll tell you a funny story. So I, was, I lived in England for a year. I wanted to live long there longer, but we had to come back and. <clears throat> So Halloween rolls around, right? There, there were two funny things that happened to me there that, that were really mind-bending. The, the first one actually was, was the Halloween thing. So Halloween rolls around. And of course, you know, being an American, it's like my favorite holiday. So we go find some pumpkins, carve the pumpkins, put them out front with a candle in it. You know, we've got candy and nobody shows up. And we're like... What's going on? They just don't do it. But we were all ready and had candy and yeah. So that kind of blew my mind because you'd think that England, you know, there's it has such a a strong paranormal history with witchcraft and paganism and you know, you would think that it holiday it'd be a big holiday, but it wasn't. The second one that really did blow my mind. So on the 4th of July, which obviously a big holiday here, but considering we kicked the British out of our country, not such a big holiday there. So the 4th of July rolls around, and we decided to go see a movie, right? And so we go to the movie theater, and they have bars in the movie theater. So I'm, I'm, I'm at the movie theater, and it's like, well, I'm hungry. So I go to TGI Fridays, which is like, you know, a fairly Americana kind of restaurant overseas, right? And so I go in and all the waiters and waitresses are dressed up in costumes. Like the guy that served me was dressed up like a cowboy. Okay. And so I'm like, well, why are you dressed up? He's like, oh, you're American. I'm like, yeah, I'm American. Why are you dressed up on? That makes no sense. And he's like, oh, well, they told us 
that that for the Fourth of July, Americans wear costumes. And I'm like, no. He goes, you don't wear costumes on the Fourth of July. I'm like, no. We blow stuff up. We don't wear costumes. Blow stuff up. And he's like, oh, I've got to tell the manager. I'm like, yeah. If you want to be, you know, pretend to be American, you know, or, or kind of have that vibe. Yeah, don't don't wear a costume on the Fourth of July. Wear an American flag, sure, you know, but don't wear a costume. So, uh, and Mr. Lobo made reference to the uh, uh, the gimmicks that William Castle uh, would always have in his movies, uh, and I seen uh, those as a little kid in original showings. Oh wow! And uh, the one my favorites though. Yeah, I was scared with the House of Usher. Oh, See, I'm my, sure. My brother would. It's a uh, freaky movie. Um, my mom would drop us off at the movies, right? And uh, my brother was supposed to watch me. <laughs> okay. But he wanted to be with his friends, so he always put me in one of the front rows, and he'd sit in the back row and watch so you. He'd still be able to see me, right? So when that woman's trying to claw her way out of the coffin, and the walls are breaking apart, dripping blood. I was out of that theater, man. <laughs> and uh, I start running down the hallway, and all of a sudden, something grabs onto me, and my feet are going, and I can't go anywhere. It was my brother. <laughs> you know, one of the first one of the first movies I ever saw in a movie theater was The Terminator. So my brother sells my mom and this whole thing. Yeah, I'm going to take him to go see the movies. Right. And I'm like, I don't know, seven. Right. And so we get in the line and we had those dome movie theaters and we get in the line and we're standing in the line and I'm like, what is it we're going to see? He's like, we're going to go see the Terminator. I'm like, but that's rated R. You have to be over 17. He's like, yeah, I got this. So he gets us into the movie theater and I'm watching the Terminator at like seven years old in the movie theater. Like it just went straight over my head. All I saw was him going, are you Sarah Connor? Bang, bang. You know, I, the rest of it was just. But you know, uh, even though uh, I was a teenage werewolf, came out at that time, the movies that I liked were the early Ray Harryhausen thing. Oh, sure. Where they, uh, they finally blow away the creature from uh, Venus, and he's atop the Colosseum in Rome, you know? I don't know if you ever see a film that was made by Ray Harryhausen. So Willis O'Brien died, and he was the originator of King Kong. He invented that style of uh, animation. And uh, he was working, when he died, he was working on a film, and it was about cowboys and dinosaurs. It was called Valley of the Guanky, and he died. Oh, yeah. And as soon as Ray Harryhausen became well-established enough, uh, he wanted to make this film in honor of his mentor. Because he helped move those little models that Willis O'Brien made. I mean, he was he studied under Willis O'Brien, and uh, Valley of the Guanqui is just such. They they bring down the Allosaurus that's uh, uh, climbed down the Mission, you know, in the Southwest somewhere, and uh, it's just great stuff. But again, you know, going back to what we were discussing about Doc Savage. Oh yeah. These movies. Right, these Ray Harryhausen movies, George Pal, you know, these are these are essentially American movies. That they are, you know, they there were people who made movies like that, 
but never in the style. These kind of low budget movies, they're they're essential American films. I mean the the Soviets back in the day, you know, they they have a very rich history of making science fiction films because science fiction has long been the way to prophesize the future. And so, you know, they're quite humorous to watch. There's one called the Ikiri XB1, you know, and, and it's this, you know, multicultural, you know, uh, communist, Marxist spaceship flying through. And, and it's just, it's this utopian spaceship. And they come across an American spaceship adrift and they go inside and it's, it's all very opulent you know, and the entire crew is like sitting around like a dining table and they were having some sort of like big meal and they're all dead. And it turns out that they get up into the higher part where the where the, the pilot was. And the pilot was like, he was a general and he had shot the, the actual pilot because I guess they were running out of air. And so he had jacked in this stuff. I forget, it was like hyena gas or something, and he killed the entire crew to, so he could live longer. You know, it was just their vision of what Americans were like. Yeah, now, to me, the uh, American story would be more like the giant squid right. that takes down the Golden Gate Bridge. Yeah, no, that's, I, it's an essential. That captured my imagination like you wouldn't believe. Sure. Okay, did you know that my grandfather, their studios were in Oakland. And uh, my grandfather was in Mighty Joe Young. Oh, wow. Um, so what happened was that, you know the scene where um, Mighty Joe Young is having a tug of war with like, I don't know, with like the 10 or 20th strongest man? Right. Well, they found all those guys at my uh, uh, grandfather's gym. Oh, wow. My, my grandfather uh, ran a gym at that time. So other than the lead guy, there was some kind of, boxing star something like that right. they had in there but all those extras that were uh, pulling on that rope with my against mighty joe young uh, was my grandfather and his the guys that worked out at his gym but these these kind of low budget you know movies i mean we'll, we'll get lobo on because lobo he's he's like a horror host historian bad movie historian like, he knows all this stuff. But, I mean, just the horror host alone, there's oh, yeah. this rich uh, history, and I could see he was well-versed. So, in, uh, during the break, uh, Olaf was showing me uh, little clips of this right. guy introducing the, the, the movie. And he borrowed from Ernie mm -hmm. Kovacs, Al Collins, um, uh, and then, of course... Uh, played off of the stereotypes of the William Castle films oh, yeah. and the other horror uh, hosts. So that, yeah, that and was he is really a, cool. He has a robot called uh, Abacus. You met Colonel Chomps at the Bigfoot Festival. I did. Colonel Chomps, the uh, carnivorous plant. Yeah. Oh, yes. Yes, I met yeah. Colonel Chomps. Yeah. I forgot about the carnivorous plant. Yeah, and, and that... That puppet was made by the guy that did uh, Audrey too, in the film um, Little Shop of Horrors. Oh, wow. Same artist. Same guy. Same guy, yeah. The stuff you've got, Dave. <laughs> no, you'll, you'll like Lobo. You'll riff, you'll riff with him yeah, the whole so time. Yeah, so his co-host is a plant. 
Yeah, Miss. Although Mrs. in my case, the plant talks back. Yeah, no, the plant never talks. Right. Unless but it's after flies. I want to say the first rocking chair he ever used was actually Bob Wilkins. Right. But Bob Wilkins actually trained him to be a horror host. That's why, you know, when you brought up Bob Wilkins, that's, yeah. Well, that was um, Channel 2, I think, KTVU Oakland, out of out Oakland. Oh, right? he was also up in SAC. He was in... Or he, maybe West Sacramento. Well, no, he, he did both. He started okay. He started on KTVU doing Creature Features. Creature Features. Yeah, and then I was actually... I, the guy's name escapes me now, but... When I was a kid, when I watched Creature Features, I saw the second guy, the guy that took over for Bob Wilkins. Okay. No, but, that, and, and it was on too late for me, but I sure. would watch it anyway. Yeah, I did that too. My, uh, my TV had a headphone jacks. Oh, no, nothing like that. My mom would put my bed in caddy corner so I could see into the living room to our TV set. Yeah. I was heavily influenced by Steve Allen as well. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, those... Uh, Girls in the bird costumes come down from the schmuck, the schmock schmock girls. I, that I don't know. Oh, Steve Allen. Yeah, that's great stuff. Oh yeah, we. Oh and okay, now kind of touching back on the Doc Savage yes. thing. Yes. The reason why we're here. Um. Well, no, the reason why I'm here is to talk about exactly what we're talking. That's <laughs> true. Yeah, um. I forgot to mention one of his sidekicks, his cousin Patricia Savage. And she's an adventurer just like he is. Although she, he tries to keep his kid sister uh, out of trouble. And she does get into a lot of trouble. Well, sure. Uh, but uh, she um, kicks it just like he does. Oh, wow. And it is the model for Laura Croft. She carries around this heirloom cult, <laughs> cult uh, yeah. pistol. And uh, she's trained in all the martial arts and stuff. But she's highly intelligent. Uh, she runs a successful New York business, actually. Collector of art. It's just the, uh, Laura Croft. Laura Croft. Patricia, uh, Patricia uh, Savage first appears in The Brand of the Werewolf. Number five, Doc Savage. So, so how many did you say there were? 240 now or something? 213. 213. Uh, 161 of the original ones by Lester Dent. The rest of them by various artists. And then this guy named Will Murray um, was a science fiction writer, real avid fan of right. Doc Savage, and uh, made an agreement with uh, Lester Dent's um, widow uh, uh, foundation. Or he got access to Lester Dent's unfinished manuscripts. Oh, wow. So he finished them for, for him. And then I think that went up to uh, I don't know how many. And then uh, uh, Will Murray made a few on his own. Jose Philip Farmer made a couple of them. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's up to 213 now. That's and then wild, all, though. And then all the comic books. Yeah, you, you've got um, quite a collection sitting uh, on the table here. Right. And the, um, uh, they had, he had a radio show for a long time. Oh, you could join the Jack. So... These pulp magazines were great. That's what Bantam misses out. I've seen reprints of the original pulps, and the illustrations are beautiful. Right. I mean, if you look at the illustrations, like these Edgar Rice Burrow books, the reason why I brought them in yeah. is these half-naked girls posing with pterodactyls and silly oh, right. tigers, you know, and then you Frenzy. ride away. Yeah, and Vallejo and all those guys. Right. Uh, the ones that, uh, the reprints on the um, Doc Savages was by a different guy, but... 
some of those original line drawings, like the et etching, you know, yeah. the uh, old, I think they're actually etching on the metal, uh, the old lithograph uh, method. Uh, but you got the Doc Savage, uh, you could join the Doc Savage Club, you get your little membership cards, you get your little pin you wore, um, you could, um, uh, they'd have the Doc Savage exercise program because Doc Savage. Oh, yeah, he's ripped. Uh, he did his workout two hours every day. But he, he's not just working out. He's doing complex math problems in his head. While he's doing it. Right. And stuff. And they actually have uh, instructions on how to uh, do his exercise routine. And, and the math. And a baby, so I, <laughs> I, I don't know. I can't. And then letters, you know, docs uh, letters. And, uh, did you realize Lester didn't had to come up with a novel a month? That's crazy. Yeah, that is uh, crazy. But you know, the one thing that I find very interesting about you know the Doc Savages or the Buckaroo Bonsai's or you know even the James Bonds, you know, it, it was this idea that you have this this hero that you know he knows everything. He's a chemist, he's a biologist, he's an archaeologist, he's an engineer, he's everything. Nowadays, you know, they're very, like, drilled down. That it's like they are good at specific things. Well, he had his uh, Fabulous Five and his cousin uh, Patricia. Uh, yeah, right. Doc Savage was really the straight man. Yeah. You know, um, it was the antics of the other characters. Uh, that uh, actually stepped things up quite a bit. He needed that. Oh, and then here's another comparison. So uh, Superman had a cousin. Uh, what was her name? Uh, she, uh, she was uh, Supergirl. Right. And uh, guess what? Clark Savage had his cousin, um, Patricia. Well, I think you, you had me at the Fortress of Solitude. Yeah. I mean, the, the name of the book is Fortress of Solitude. Okay. Doc Savage is the man of bronze. Right. And what's Clark Kent? The man of steel. That's right. Oh, and then they're both their names is Clark. Except for Doc Savage was out front. Yeah. Everybody knew where he lived, and uh, he was good friends with the police department. You know, like, <laughs> I mean, everybody knew him. Yeah, the classic scene of him is they're having to hurry up to a scene of a crime in the pouring rain. Right. And there's not enough room in the coop or they're in a hurry. And he's on the running board, you know, and with the rain. And um, just pretty exciting like, stuff. Like the FBI. And he set out the pattern of those page turners where they were like the serials, the ep episodic at the end of the chapter. Right. How is this guy going to get out of it? Sure. Oh, and Lester Dent's uh, How to Write Good Adventure Novels, he says, for the first so many words, third of the book, heap misery upon them. And then the second, <laughs> so many, heap more misery <laughs> upon them. Uh, that was his pattern. Yeah. It, uh, it's just uh, really great stuff. Um, and then, uh, why don't you play the Doc Savage? Oh, movie? yeah. So just it. think, uh, isn't Superman, it's the uh, uh, battle for truth, justice, and the American way, right? It's right there on the desktop. Yeah, I'm just looking for it. it in. It's the only one on the desktop. Well, no, there's a bunch of stuff on here. Uh, the one oh, I got the it. Player. I got it. Yeah. Okay, here it comes. Here we go. 
us remember our code. Yeah, don't forget Let it. Let us strive every moment of our lives to make ourselves better and better to the best of our ability, so that all may profit by it. Let us think of the right and lend our assistance to all who may need it. With no regard for anything but justice. Let us take what comes with a smile. Oh, I love the music. Without loss of courage. Let us be considerate of our country, our fellow citizens, and our associates in everything we say and do. Let us do right to all and wrong no man. Amazing. Doesn't that just stir your heart? It did. Yeah, man. Take the Doc Savage Pledge, uh, his creed. And uh, he is the, uh, uh, like, the uh, embodies the pinnacle in human achievement possible. Yeah, uh, really. And I think that that's what I was trying to get at is that when you look at the Doc Savage model of the hero, he really is like the pin physically. You know, mentally, I mean, he is the pinnacle of, of human existence. He was trained by birth. So his mom uh, died in childbirth. His father was a famous explorer, adventurer himself. He turned over the kid to a team of scientists. <laughs> and then from birth, <laughs> okay. he was But he was socially awkward. Well, sure, he's trained yeah. by a group of well, scientists. Well, that was his, uh, that was his uh, kind of weakness. Is that uh, like he was totally embarrassed around girls? Well, sure. He was socially awkward guy, kind of autistic guy actually. Yeah, it seems like it. But uh, just think, this is during the depression when nobody has nothing, and they can go on this a kind of adventure like this for a dime. And oh yeah. And it's just still instilling uh, uh, the wonder like not only inspiration, no. Yeah. But also aspirational. Yeah, it's it, it instills a sense of wonderment. But you were right when we were talking because most of these Marvel comics and stuff today are in in the film, in the movies. Right. And uh, they have become, now it's reflecting another change in the culture. This was total optimism. And this was in the throes of the Depression. Right. But this is total optimism. It is. Stuff. It really is. Now, uh, the modern superhero is either teen angst in some kind of grave doubt. Right. Or uh, has some fatal flaw. Oh, or yeah. um, has well, it, his dark side. Well, it's like Batman. You know, Batman is a tortured hero. Brooding. Yeah, the Punisher. The building. You know, the Punisher. His, you know, his whole family is murdered. You know, and he, he's on this vengeance kick to rid all the world of all crime. You know, it's there's always there's always a darker element, right? But, yeah. In the more modern, uh, even if they're only suffering like from teen angst, like Peter Parker, right? <laughs> you know, it's still the same kind of deal. Well, yeah. And uh, but then that those imperfections probably 
uh, they relate to the more common experience of today. Right. And uh, that... Uh, um, so the superhero is still evolving, um, but they all owe it to the father of the superhero. Doc Savage. Um, Doc Savage. And you can, uh, his books are still available. You can go to eBay. I, I recommend, re and I don't even have any, is the reprints of the original magazines, but it doesn't have the ads. But yeah. it does have his exercise program and stuff like that. Um, and the original drawings. So. Yeah, but I mean, even when I was a kid, <clears throat> comic books were very different. You know, they were more, uh, how should I put it? They, they weren't as dark. It was like there, there was angst or there was violence or there was, but there was a point. Now a lot of it is, is just pure angst. Well, this, this is Hardy Boy stuff. Oh, yeah. You know, I mean, uh, if anybody... Uh, but the Hardy Boys themselves are a manifestation of, of the time when they uh, were... Uh, yes, exactly right. And uh, so you could say, well, they were contemporaries. There wasn't one that was a precursor of the other. They right. were contemporaries with Nancy Drew. Right. She was the detective uh, girl. And, uh, and it was exactly the same. It was written under Carol Keene. That's the house name of the publisher. I don't, I'm not quite sure who published the Nancy Drews. But but it's it's interesting, you know, earlier on you were pointing out that even Scooby-Doo derives part of it from Doc Savage. Yeah, because they have their team, right? Mystery Inc., and they have what they call the Fabulous Five. But if you watch if you watch the old Scooby-Doo's, they're they're kind of funny. You know, it's like watching the old Batman with Adam West. Oh God, I've seen a Scooby-Doo where in the end they're all slaughtered. That they run into. Uh, did you ever see that? Uh, where aren't they from? What city were they? Oh, from? Oh, I forget the name of it. Um, but, but the new ones, the new ones are very different. Well, this was uh, supposedly a live-action Scooby-Doo. Oh, okay, yeah. You know, and the dog looked pretty good for Scooby-Doo. It wasn't a talking. Well, dog there's dog. there's one of them. There's a new new one, right? That really focuses on like Velma and stuff. But oh yeah, Velma was hot. Here's the hot <laughs> one. But a librarian, a librarian. smart one. Oh yeah, she's the one that always solved the problem. Yeah, but right. there was there's one there's a series that's called Mystery Incorporated, and it, it's Scooby Doo like Shaggy's there, Scooby the whole nine yards, but there's no mask to rip off, and they they go after like the Chupacabra and Bigfoot and like the Illuminati and UFOs, but instead of it being fake, like the original, it's real. Yeah, well, Doc Savage was a combination of the two. Sure. He herded brontosauruses in. Uh, right. You're although right. the werewolves uh, ended up being a secret cult <laughs> that he had to. Uh, well, aren't they uh, always? Aren't the werewolves always a uh, secret cult? Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. But, um, uh, but there was a lot of the. Um, and there was a lot of those early Ghostbusters. You know, like uh, make believe it's a haunted house because right. really it's a counterfeit ring. Yeah, or, or they're pumping. They have like an oil. They have like an oil pump below it. They're trying to steal all the gold or oil. Right. Yeah. There's a lot of Doc Savages like that, but there's a lot of ones where he actually goes to these lost worlds and uh, lizard men that you are know, living in the sands in the desert. You know, it reminds me. I think it's Gene Autry. He had a TV show, and he had a 
He had an when he went into the center of the earth and met the people down, yeah, down he, there. Below his below his uh ranch. his ranch was like the survivors of Atlantis. Something like that. Yeah. I, I saw the movie. Or maybe it was Lemuria, but but yeah, it was a TV show. And below his ranch, I think it was the survivors of Lemuria. Yeah, and he's singing songs and everything. Yeah. And uh he's uh it's interesting how it infiltrates. Hollow Earth people. It, well, it's interesting how how that stuff, you know, through you know mass media, how it it kind of infiltrates the psyche. No, I love that show. I I forget what what it was called now. But I, th- but, uh, I think it was Gene Autry. It was. Yeah, it was. And then my my dad used to tell me stories about this show from the fifties called Sky King. Sky King, yeah, with Penny. Yeah, and, and they his, had an airplane. Her niece, yeah, and they went around riding wrongs. And, right, and, and going to Lost Worlds. Uh, See, for me, when I was a kid, that show was Land of the Lost. Okay. Which is, you know, they, they, went into like a, they went into like a cavern, and they got lost, and they ended up in this like lost world inside the earth or something, and they were always trying to get out. But then in the 80s, there was a really weird one, and I don't remember the name of it. But this family, and this is all an offshoot of Doc Savage, I think. This family goes into a pyramid at Giza, and they're there during some kind of celestial alignment. And they get transported to, like, an alternate world. And they're, they're like, trying to navigate through this, like, authoritarian, weird world where they have, like, pyramids everywhere. You're getting more into Doctor Who territory. <laughs> oh, you you want to go Doctor Who? Oh, let's no, go. Uh, this is. Uh, I'm a Whovian man. Let's go. No, I really Tom Baker. Tom Baker there. is Doctor Who. That's right. You know they did it. They actually did a uh, a survey. They didn't do it recently because you know there's been a whole series of yeah. of Doctor Who since. But back in back before they relaunched it, they did a survey. I think they may have actually done it again, come to think of it. But Tom Baker was voted the most authentic Doctor Who. Yeah, no, he was it. Yeah, and he lived it. Um, David Tennant probably is a close second. Yeah, like, a little too hysterical for me. But you want to I know like what? Eccleston though. Eccleston, uh, Eccleston, you know, I was living in England when they re, when they redid it and I gave my entire department the afternoon off so that they could go home and prepare for Doctor Who. Um, so the classic Tom Baker one is he's surrounded by aliens with their laser guns trained on them. They're some kind of lizard people or something. Right. And he reaches into his pocket oh, and they the go to guns ready. And he pulls jelly out a bag and he goes, jelly baby, anyone? Oh, yeah. I mean, that was just too cool. Oh yeah, and they they had the one with the vampires and and like the 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 vampire was like this huge, like planet sized vampire, and they had like stake ships, you know, that they would ram and you know. Yeah. But traveling um, throughout uh, all space and time with the TARDIS. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I also like the Avengers. The Avengers were good. And not the Avengers that Marvel comic Avengers. This no, is, no, no, uh, no. This is Diana uh, Reagan. That's and, right. Uh, what's his name? Did you ever see a Emma Peel and John Steed? Did you ever see a show called Sapphire and Steel? No. You should watch Sapphire and Steel. It's 
it was once described to me as a, a cross between like the X-Files and HP Lovecraft. It's really weird. Sounds it. It's good. It has uh Oh, now I can't remember who's in it. It's good though. It's but it's strange. So all of us uh decided we're going to end up doing a film one. Uh, you know, uh tonight we could have talked about the uh evolution of uh the art, that kind of art. With oh, sure. Different artists uh, from along the way. And it, well, it's it's all part and, of and it. And then it became the comic book, I guess. Yeah. The cover yeah. art of the old pulps. Uh, well, they started to put... Totally incredible. In the magazines where they would talk about this stuff, they'd start to put in the comics, and they grew and grew and grew. Yeah, I have one that, that is like that. I don't know if I brought that or not. That it's just this black and white with like stories, mm -hmm. and then all of a sudden there was a comic section. I have some comic books. Um, they're shadow comics, but they pair up Doc Savage and the uh, Shadow mm -hmm. together. But you know the the thing is that at the time, you know Doc Savage and and the Shadow, you know it was like a multimedia blitz. You could get the book, you could listen to the radio drama. You know, I mean it was everywhere. Like it was, it was like a, a cross media kind of thing. Well, when Superman, uh, you got the Fleischer cartoons, right? You got those. Who played? Uh, was it Steve Reeves? Played, Chris Reeves uh, played. Oh no, no, no! I'm thinking of more, um, more common, or I mean, more recent. And there's there's one like no, it was the guy. It was the guy who died. Well, that was on the television one. Yeah. But I just seen this movie and it just really touched my heart and it was just as hokey as you could get. You could almost see the wires. It was like one of the first Superman films. And I don't know if it was released as serials, but I saw it when it was all kind of together. Yeah. And uh, they're drilling and they drill. It was the deepest oil well oh, in the world. Yeah. And they had the uh, little uh, mole people. Yeah, with Superman and the mole people. And the mob was after him, them. Um, and the mole people were innocent. They just, we drilled down to them, right? Right. And Superman defends the mole people. Yeah, there was a Doctor Who like that. I think it was the Silurians. Same idea. That originally, the Silurians had been the inhabitants of the earth, and then we pushed them under the water. So they all build upon uh, yeah. one another. Uh, and uh, so what we ended up doing or tried to do is kind of trace the origins, the evolution. No, I think you characters. did. I mean, it's, again, you know, you've laid out a very compelling argument that Doc Savage, who started out as a real person, you know, he is the archetype. And you can see it's like an octopus. You can see the tentacles. But it is uniquely American. It is uniquely American. I mean, this is a guy, a product of the California gold rush, Colonel. Right. You know. Oh, and he also uh, built uh, uh, the first military base in Havana, and he built the military base in Montauk. Uh, the um, yeah, I know. <laughs> no, he did. He was an uh, Army Corps of Engineers. Then. Well, Mon Montauk's a whole thing by itself. Yeah, I know, but I thought that was curious that connection. Well, yeah, I mean, it's you know, when I was a kid, I used to watch a show with James Burke called Connections. And I remember one in particular, he was walking 
across like a like a grassy area in front of I think it was at like Cambridge or Oxford. And he's talking about he's talking about like the evolution of nuclear weapons. And he said and I forget what he linked it to, but he, he says he's got a briefcase and he says, You know what's inside this briefcase? I bet you don't. And you know, obviously I have no idea what's in the briefcase. He turned or no, he was talking about like like philosophers or something. And then he says, it all led to this. And he's got this briefcase and he, he goes, you know what's inside of it? And obviously you don't. And then he turns it around and he opens it and it's a nuclear weapon. And then he closes it and he throws it up in the air, which is like a, you know, homage to Kubrick, right? And he would draw these like weird correlations from like cargo cults, like we were talking about earlier, you know, and how those influenced this guy and this guy and this guy and this guy. And eventually you end up with a nuclear submarine. Oh, so I had this character that's called the uh, Ace Donovan, and he right. flies a cargo plane, and right. he used to be a pilot for World War II, uh, but he changed his business. He flies cargo. Right. And uh, he teams up with um, Peggy Bannon, a reporter, and they go on these adventures, and I have one the Forbidden Island where the guy's raising these gigantic pearls and uh, these are carnivorous uh, mollusks. <laughs> yeah. Um, and uh, the, um, it's real colonialism at its worst. Right. Uh, that these pearl divers are like uh, the real, like sub, you know, he acts like they're subhuman stuff. Oh, sure. So Ace Donovan uh, frees the... Uh, uh, people and they all believe because when they saw him come down in the plane, you know, right. it's the cargo cult. They was they were going to come again. Oh, the, the cargo cults are unreal. Uh, so. What's what's the name of the guy? I'm working on one now where he's um, uh, they're at a race to save a uh, um, ancient Peruvian artifacts, complete with giant condor attacks, uh, the rope bridge collapsing. And, there's a guy that's always referenced with the cargo cults. I forget John John Rum. Is it John Rum? Oh yeah, no, yeah, and it was a. Uh, no, I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. And uh, he was the guy that came down and said the cargo will come again. Right, and he was and almost he's, like the saintly figure. He was, yeah, he was like he was like a god. Uh, but if you listen to their dialect and think for a minute, it really means like Johnny American or something. Yeah. Uh, Captain so and so. Yeah, I'm trying to I'm trying to find it. So when John they, from John from John from America. John, yeah, John from is a mythic. A mythic figure associated with cargo cults in the island of Tana in Vanuatu. He is often depicted as an American World War II serviceman who will bring wealth and prosperity to the people. I saw in the end of this episode, Ace Donovan kind of becomes that figure. The, those cargo cults, are, they're, they're wild. Uh, so they, they really uh, during the World War II, the military came in in the Pacific and built bases. Right. And uh, then at the end of the war, abandoned them. But it was, they put all the native peoples that were there to work. But the one thing that the cargo cult people said, it says, it, 
in a, in a way, it freed them from the colonialism because uh, I have an interview with this one cargo cult guy. And he says, I, he says, when I saw people my color side by side by the people of the other color, right. he says, I knew this is what I wanted to be part of. And he said, they told me that they were fighting for freedom for everyone. Right. And they helped build the bases. And uh, Oh, yeah. Uh, no, it's if you watch the films of their rituals, they're fascinating because they build control towers. Yeah, they do. That runways, and runways, and they, they light they light fires and wait for the plane. Well, actually, in, in the one in particular, they have a guy up in the car or in the control tower with a with a uh, like a cone, and he's yelling orders. I can't. I'm on the radio. I can't cover it. But he's he's yelling orders down to the people below, and they have these airplanes that they constructed, yes. and they lift them yeah. up. And they taxi them, carrying them. They taxi them. Sometimes they have wheels, but generally they carry them. They're taxiing it onto the runway. And then he gives them the order to go. And then they run down the runway. The end of the runway, they throw it into the sea. Um, yeah, I had to It's do, like a sacrifice. I had to do research for this. And I have the song that they sing when right. they're lighting the fires. And I have an interview with a guy. But somebody else is translating. Are there's... It's a combination. It's like a Spanglish, but whatever language they talk. Because right. all of a sudden you recognize a few words, yeah. you know. And, but they, he actually has an interpreter. Guy but when they, when they were yelling the instructions to the people carrying the plane, it was all in English. Because they had literally memorized what they would call down from the control tower as the planes were taxiing. Yeah. So it's like taxi to runway four left. And so they're carrying the thing over. It's 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 crazy. They, they it really is a fascinating, fascinating thing. Maybe I should dig that show out and replay it on KAD. You should. Uh, well, surprisingly, we burned up two hours. Okay. So, is there any closing thoughts? Yes. Um. What's 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 Dave's closing closing thought? I, I guess what it is, um, go out and create something. That's what Alexander Weigers would, would say. You know what Buckaroo Banzai would say? Oh, let, let me hear it, man. Wherever you go, there you are. Oh, yeah, you know, uh, uh, <laughs> uh, actually, Lord Buckley uh, was a, uh, the originator of that saying, and it's in the end of his uh, routine Jonah. He says it like a fortune cookie, and it says, translate it briefly, means, uh, well, actually, it's no matter where you go, there you are. That's right. Words to live by. Well, <clears> that has been another thrilling two hours of the Enigma Hour with Captain Tiki, Miola Phillips, and uh, Captain Dave in the, the other seat. Parties for duty. <laughs> Exploring one of life's little mysteries. Well, this was definitely one of life's... On our five-year missions. <laughs> to seek out and explore s strange new things and experience the woo. Okay. Well, anyway, we, we uh, do the show live every Thursday here on KAADLP, uh, 103.5 here in Sonora. Um, every Thursday from 10 p.m. to midnight. Um, we also podcast. Uh, we're on SoundCloud. Apple Podcasts, wherever you find your better podcasts. 
you can, I finally set up the, the website sort of, it's pretty minimal, but you can go to the enigma hour.com. Oh, and, and we'll be broadcasting live Halloween oh, morning. Yeah. Halloween morning. On, uh, uh, well, throughout Greater Sacramento, the CBS affiliate, Channel yes. 13. Channel 13. Yeah. Apparently, we'll be on there. But yeah, yeah. We're going to go ghost hunting. We're going to explore the uh, ghosts uh, here at the Dome. Yeah, where we broadcast from is actually haunted. So we're going we're gonna to see if we can take an SB7 up there and talk to the ghosts. Well, anyway, thanks for listening. Um, hope you enjoy the show. Definitely, you know, find us. I'm on... Uh, Instagram is Captain Tiki Show. Uh, you can find me on Facebook as Olav Phillips. Uh, I don't know. I'm around. You can find me. Olav, O-L-A-V, at A-N-O-M-A-L-I-E-S dot net or Olav at theenigmahour.com. Send, send us an email. Let us know what you want to talk, us to talk about. And you can always find me here in the basement. <laughs> yeah. Here, down here in the bunker. It really is like a bunker. Best place to be during the zombie apocalypse. That's true. <laughs> this place is a fortress. All right. Well, thanks again for listening and uh, have a good night. <laughs> <laughs>